You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Good morning to those who are watching from the chapel. Good morning to those who are watching online. Good morning for those who are live and in person today. I know that the 10 o'clock tends to have a lot of college students, so I just want to say congratulations on two things from yesterday. One, that we played a football game. Number two, that we won a football game. So both of those things were great. Congratulations to the Bears. There's a massive difference between a supernaturally changed heart. That's a good work in us. And just a routine attempt to improve your behavior. That's moralism or that's moral humanism. In these past five weeks, we have been looking and I hope we have been moving from that thought of human-based improvement. Just trying our hardest to be better the next week. Instead to understanding that God's love and God's grace And our endurance in God and our humility in God and our hope in God transforms our our lives, our hearts from the inside out. And this is what we've been talking about these past many weeks. What does that look like for transformation that begins here in the heart? And then let that change our lives, our behavior, our actions, our attitudes, our thoughts. Again, inside out transformation. If you've been here the last few weeks, it'll be no surprise at all where we're about to turn. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 together. It's the seventh book in the New Testament. If that helps you to get there a little bit quicker, I encourage you to open up your copy of God's Word. Let's be in this passage together. Let's see what God says to us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll read the first eight verses, and then we'll finish out this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing, for love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures All things, love never ends. We'll stop right there for for a few moments. This is a famous passage. I mean, it's beautiful. It's moving. It's it's poetic. You probably have heard it at weddings before. I officiated a wedding yesterday, and I, I used this passage. You may have some of these verses posted in your kitchen somewhere in a beautifully framed picture right next to your live, laugh, and love picture, right? It's somewhere in, in your kitchen. Um, the, the, the picture I have in, in my kitchen is sleep, snack, and Shipley's Donuts. That's kind of my three S's that I kind of live my life around. But what we often do here in First Corinthians chapter 13 is we rip it out of context. 
And we just think it's a beautiful, flowing poem that we're supposed to read somewhere around wedding time. But we need to see really the context of, of what's happening here because Paul is writing a letter to a very specific church, a church in Corinth that was going through some very specific situations. In fact, it was written to Corinth and Corinth was a college town of about 100,000 people. It was a relatively new place in a way. It was kind of refounded by Julius Caesar back in 44 BC, or kind of resurrected by Julius Caesar. And it was kind of the city that everyone wanted to live in. I mean, Paul was writing this in 53 AD, so the city is only 97-something years old, and it's, it's a beautiful city. It was the, the, the host city for the Isthmian Games we talked about a few weeks ago, like the, the Olympics, every two years. It was, it was a place filled with bright people, filled with gifted people, filled with talented people. It was a city that was, that was filled with great potential, kind of like you guys. You guys, I'm not from Minnesota, y'all, like, like y'all. It, it reminds me a little bit of some of the faces I see this morning, bright people, talented people, gifted people. And this is a, a room filled with potential today, and this is who Paul is, is writing to that church there in Corinth. We, we see this filled with great potential and, and great talent and, and great brilliance because of verse 1, that there was miraculous gifts. Some people were able to, to speak like Angels, this eloquence like, like angels. Some were able to even speak other languages. Verse 2, we see that it's filled with people who had powerful gifts. They could understand deep mysteries. They could speak to a mountain because they had so much faith. Verse 3, we see that church was filled with moral gifts. These were people who were willing to die for their faith. Those was a church filled with people who would be willing to give everything they had to feed the hungry. And so it was filled with people who were willing to be martyrs. There were some great, I'm sure, social justice warriors there who would say, I will do whatever it takes as long as the poor are taken care of. So this is a gifted church. They were active. They were serving. They were giving. They were contending for the faith. But you can have all those things going on and still miss out on what's truly Important. In fact, I think we see here that they still had nothing. Verse 3, they gained nothing. Verse 2, you can have all those things and still be nothing. You can have all of those things going on. In verse 1, you can be irritating like a noisy gong. You can seem to have everything going on right on the outside of your life. Busy, persuasive, religious, moral, Bright, knowledgeable, socially just, but still be desolate on the inside. I said this to you about six weeks ago, so if you don't mind hearing the repetition of this, you can have a full schedule, but an empty heart. You can have a moral exterior, but a corrupt heart. You can have a busy religiosity, but emotionless heart. It's possible because it was happening to some very bright, talented, promising people here in the book of Corinthians, here in this letter that Paul was writing to that church. We see people here based on chapter 12, which we won't read today, and chapter 14, which we won't read today. These people who were so gifted, but they had lost sight of what was clearly the most important thing. You see, spiritual gifts are significant, but, but love is supreme. 
If you read 1 Corinthians 13, especially these first seven, eight verses in context of the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that verses 4, 5, and 6 especially, they're not just some random list of love's characteristics. Instead, it's like a direct rebuke to the Corinthian Christians and how they were not expressing love to other people. They had everything going on except they weren't loving. You don't have to turn there, but back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see that they were boasting in, in leaders. You see in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, they were rejoicing in evil. You see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they were taking one another to court. You see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that they were insisting on their own way, even if it caused other people to stumble. We see in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that they were acting in ways that were rude and shameful. We see in that same chapter, chapter 11, that they were taking the Lord's Supper in, in self We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that they were competing over who was the most spiritually gifted. I mean, they were impatient. They were unkind toward one another. They were filled with jealousy and pride. So verses 4, 5, and 6 are very purposeful words. These were words that Paul used with great intentionality because this is who the Corinthian Christians were not. Do you see what God is saying to his family? This is a shattering conclusion. We are nothing without love. No matter how much you know, how much you say, how much you do, we are nothing without love. And so if we were to step back and and look at verses 4 through 7, I think we see primarily two characteristics of love. And you can mark this in your notes, in your Bible, or just kind of consider it with me today. We see primarily two characteristics of love. Here's the first one that love is essentially selfless. That's a, a mark of the love that Paul is talking about. The love is essentially selfless. That's what we see in verse four is patient. We see in verse four is kind. We see in verse four it's not arrogant. To the point, in verse five, it says, it does not insist on its own way. So if you are note takers, you may want to write down this next phrase, but let me just warn you, it's a little harsh. All lovelessness can be traced back to selfishness. All lovelessness in our lives, I think, can be traced back to that self-centered tendencies that we all have. If you have a hard time being loving, it's probably because you have an easy time being self-centered. It's really almost impossible for those two things to to coexist in the same heart together, to be a person of love, like the love described in the Bible, and to be self-centered at the same time. Here's the second thing I would love for you to see. Love is expressively active. Now, in the English, there are six adjectives that are used to describe love here in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. But in Greek, it's all verbs. There's no adjectives used at all. The Greek doesn't use any adjectives to describe love. Paul doesn't use any adjectives at all in the original language to describe love, but verbs instead. There were descriptions of action. In fact, 16 of them to be exact. Uh, I'll let you see it. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 16, love never ends. Verses 4 through 8 were reminding us of this. Love is not shown by words, 
but behavior. That's how love is expressively expressed. It's expressively active. That's what Paul says here in this passage. Love does this. Love does that. Love doesn't do this. Love doesn't do that. So when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words to us today, he did not set out to define love. He did not set out to define for us what love is. Instead, he set out to show us love in, and here comes my nerdiness all over the place. He shows us in present continuous tense verbs by showing us the ongoing good work of God's love in our lives. You see, this is not past tense, that this is what love once was. It's not even an intellectual understanding, oh, this is what love is. This is a picture here of what love does. And it's God's love in our heart that produces this good work. And maybe I should have done this about six weeks ago. Let me give a definition then of love. A Christ-driven, Christ-exalting definition of love. In fact, let me kind of put all of 1 Corinthians 13 into this simple summary here. To love is to be toward others the way God in Christ is toward you. That's Christian love, church family. It is to be toward others the way that God in Christ is toward you. I don't know about you, but that's very convicting to me because I have a long ways to go. And as I look around the room, I imagine some of us, many of us have a long ways to go. But this is good work because did you see where it originated? It originated with God's love toward us. Not just you and I trying to produce some kind of magical love or magical feeling in our lives so that we can express it to other people. Love toward others is the same way we are to love others in the same way. Here's the origination. Here's the genesis of it. The way that God in Christ is towards you. The way that he does love you. John Newton might be a familiar name to, to many here. An incredible story. A young boy um, raised by mom and dad. His mom died early in life. He ended up being a slave ship captain. Was radically saved by Jesus and became a pastor himself and wrote a song that you sang about 15 minutes or so ago. Amazing Grace. How, how sweet that sound. John Newton was in a conflict with a Christian brother. They had a disagreement over something. And so he, he wrote in a book how you interact with people who, who differ from you. So here's a brother with whom he had a different opinion. And he wrote a very good word, I think, for us and maybe especially in light of a pretty big election coming up in November. This is a good word for the hearts of those who love Jesus. Here's what John Newton wrote. He said, remember that the Lord loves him. Speaking of the brother with whom he had the disagreement, remember that the Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others. From a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. And he then will be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Amazing grace indeed. To love is to be toward others the way that God in Christ is toward you. Toward you, toward you, toward me. Let's wrap up this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It gets really interesting. Now, let's just pick it up here in verse 8 again. Love never ends. 
So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning here in verse 8. We're going to finish out this chapter. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, the gift of speaking in tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I I gave up my childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, I know that kind of sounds like a riddle, so let's kind of unpack this together. This is a, I think, actually is the most powerful part of this entire chapter. You see, right now, even at this very moment, we experience God in some very general ways, but scripture is telling us here, when we experience God, we really only experience him in partial ways. That's what it says in verse 9, in part, what it says in verse 9 again, in part, what it says in verse 10, partial, what it says in verse 12, dimly, what it says again in verse 12, what's already been said twice, in part. So even like right now, at this very moment, we know that God is, is here. We know that God exists. We know that God is, is able. We know that God speaks to us through his word. But we don't see him fully. We only see him partially. In other words, we don't see him right now face to face. Uh, there's a guy in the back of the room over here to, to my right, and he has... It's kind of a checkered-looking plaid shirt. Maybe some of it's pinkish and some is gray. And your mask is about down to right here. Yes, sir. You're perfectly fine. I wasn't telling you to put your mask back on at all. But as I see this this brother over here, um, so you see who I'm talking about. You might kind of just lift me. Yeah, that's, that's you right there. Absolutely. Thanks, bro. So here's the deal. I I believe you exist, right? I mean, I see you, people around you, they, they see you. So I, I believe you. Like, I believe that you exist. Um, I believe that you move because I saw you raise your hand just then. I believe that you listen because I asked you to raise your hand and you raised your hand. Um, would you mind just tell me your first name? Tyler. Did I catch that right, Tyler? So I know that he has a name. That's, that's Tyler back there. But I don't, I don't know Tyler. Like, all I know about him is, is kind of partial right now. I know that he is. So congratulations on that. You are. He, he is. He exists. He moves. He has a name. He has volition. He can make a choice whether to, you know, again, lift his hand or call out his name in front of hundreds of other, other people. But I don't know him. How I would know Tyler better is if, like, face-to-face, we began to talk. And I can hear more of his story, more of his, his attributes, his character, his, his background. I'd probably catch a little bit more face-to-face, his personality, kind of like who he really is. And so this is what Paul is saying. Like right now, we, we know God. Like we know that he moves. We know that he exists. We believe him. We believe he has a name. We believe he has, he has choices. He does things. He, he acts on our behalf. But Paul is saying here, really, we just know God right now in part. We just know God partially. We just know God kind of, kind of dimly is the, the word he uses in verse 12. So we experience God right now in similar ways that really I 
kind of know in part Tyler back there. But Paul speaks of a day that we'll know God fully. Because, verse 12, we will see him face to face. You see, we long for this, sisters and brothers. We long to see God face to face. The psalmist longed to see God face to face, which is why he wrote in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And I just want to look. Here it is, face to face. I just want to see the beauty of the Lord. Very similarly, he writes in Psalm 17, 15, And I, in righteousness, I will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. This is what we long for. Um, Augustine said, called this the, the visio day. The day that we see God clearly. The day we see the very face of our creator. And let me just tell you, Christian, this is what we were built for. This is what we long for. The day that Paul writes about here of seeing God, not in a mirror dimly, but seeing him face to face. Back in 1830, 10-year-old William Dyke was blinded by a disease. Had seen perfectly up until 10 years of life. And a disease ravaged his nervous system and it caused him to to lose his sight as a 10-year-old boy. He was a really sharp kid. He ended up going... Uh, to college at a university there in England. In fact, he graduated with honors. And while he was there, fell in love with a girl he had never seen. He asked this girl for her hand in marriage, and he had to go speak to her father, who was an admiral in the British Navy, of course. What a um, nerve-wracking experience that would have had to have been to blindly, literally, go to an admiral in the Navy and ask for the hand of his daughter that he had never, he had never seen before. The admiral, because he was so well-connected, knew some doctors in London that might be able actually to help William. At this point, he was 24 years old. And so William consented and went to this doctor. And the doctor said, I really do think that after the surgery, you'll be able to, to see again. And William said, here's what I'd like to do. I, I want the very first person I see to be my bride, who, whom I've never seen before. So would you leave the bandages on until the day of the wedding. And so on the day of, of the wedding, I mean, there were members of parliament there, members of royalty there. And here's William up on the altar of this cathedral and his father, Sir William Hartdyke, stood next to him. And then the surgeon who had performed the procedure on William's eyes stood next to William's father. When the trumpets played and, and the bride entered and came up to the altar and the surgeon came and began to unwrap the bandages from around William's face and light began to stream across his eyes and the colors of the stained glass windows in the cathedral were recognizable to him after 14 years of having never seen color or anybody since a 10 year old boy and all of a sudden his bride, his wife-to-be, came into focus. And his words echoed throughout the cathedral. You are more beautiful than I ever imagined. There's coming a day, family, 
when the partial view of God that we have at this moment, the, the dim view of God that we have this very morning will be taken off and we will see Jesus as he is and we'll stand face to face and we will see him fully and I think we will say the same thing. You are more beautiful, O Lord, than I could have ever imagined. Now, Paul says, we see and we know and we learn and we speak about God only, verse 9, in part, only, verse 9, in part, only, verse 12, in part. But we long for that day when we see Jesus face to face so we will truly and fully know him, not in part, but the whole. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but that day face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. This is beautiful. Even as I have been fully known this morning, you can know God, but only really in part. But God knows you completely. You are fully known by God. At this very moment, we only see God and his majesty his attributes, the fullness of his brilliance, the greatness of his glory, but only in part, only like through a mirror dimly. Verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love, these abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. So verse 12 reminds us that he knows us fully. Verse 13 says there's nothing greater than love. So here's my last statement of the morning and my last statement of this sermon series. Christ's love is based on the mercy of the one who loves, not on the merit of the one who is loved. God loves you. Hear me correctly on this. God loves you not because you're awesome. God loves you not because you behave correctly. God loves you because God is love. God loves you based not on your works, but based on the final work of his son, Jesus Christ, on a cross and in his resurrection. This produces a good work in us when we realize God loves us because God is love. And it's not based on our merit how good, how bad we are, our actions, our behaviors. The love of Jesus is based on the mercy of the one, him who loves, not on you and I, the merit of the ones who are loved. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Father, how great is your love toward us. And we look forward with great anticipation for that day that we will know you fully. Until that day, God, we want it to be your love received from you, the one who is filled with mercy toward us. We want it to be your love that produces, that energizes this good work in our hearts. God, we are so tired of trying in our own powers to, to do better, to be better this coming week. We want your work in our lives. We want to receive that fullness of your love to see how greatly we are loved. God, your love toward us is so kind. It's so patient. God, today, 
And this week, we want to build our lives upon that kind of love. We desire for a good work of your love in our hearts, an inside-out transformation. This is what we long for. This is what we need because we're tired, God. We're tired of self-empowered improvement. We want your love, your grace, your hope in us to change our hearts. In the name of Christ, we pray. And now in the name of Jesus, we sing. Amen.